The, re- the reading today is from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This is God's word. It's always an interesting title, uh, the senior pastor, uh, and certainly as I get older, it becomes more and more appropriate. Um, it's wonderful to be here. I, I think I was here uh, a couple of summers ago uh, preaching, and uh, I think we met in another part of the building, but it's, uh, I always counted a privilege to be uh, asked uh, to preach, and so I'm glad to be able to do it, and uh, certainly bring your greetings from uh, the uh, community there, our brothers and sisters at Maranatha uh, Grace Church. Would you join me uh, in prayer, and uh, we'll ask the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of His Word. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the, the unity of our fellowship, uh, the work of Your Spirit in knitting our hearts together, um, giving local expression to local bodies that proclaim the gospel. So we thank You for the ministry of New Hope. And pray that you would continue to bless um, their effort and endeavor uh, to bring the light of the the glory of the knowledge of uh, God in the face of Christ to Tarrytown and the greater community. Bless their plans, Lord God, with regard to the the purchase of the building, that it would further enable uh, this wonderful body of believers to preach the gospel, uh, to love God, and to love their neighbor as themselves. Thank you for this opportunity to stand here and share your word with them. And I pray that you would open our hearts to hear your word, to receive it. And then, Father, with the help of your spirit, to apply it, that we might bring further glory to Christ and greater witness to our our neighbors who have not yet made that profession of faith. We we offer these things now to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maranatha is in the middle of a, a series uh, called Life in the Family of God, and it coincides with a changeover in how we are doing a Bible study in community groups. So we have chosen for a season to focus uh, sort of internally with our, our small group ministry on our, our members only. And to, so to do that, this series that we have been uh, studying has really focused on uh, our church covenant. Most churches I'm sure New Hope has a covenant as well. And a covenant really expresses the values, the goals, the commitments of a particular body of Christ. It's gleaned, of course, from the Scriptures. The the covenant of a church is not necessarily Scripture per se, but it does express from Scripture what our goals are. And so in Maranatha's case, our our goal in going through our church covenant in in an eight-week series is that we would certainly grow in our understanding of the covenant and its biblical foundations, that it would renew our vision to be a a vibrant, a joyful, uh, an active uh, community of of Christ followers, and then that that would all lead to our ability to flourish as a church, being able not only to encourage one another in our own walk with Christ, but then go out and be witnesses for Him. So as we began the series, uh, Pastor John opened and he talked from uh, 1 John, 
um, on a covenant promise that we will love one another as God loves us, we will forgive one another as God loves us. And then the last week I did the second message in that series based on 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 26. Uh, they're emphasizing that we would uh, lovingly bear one another's burdens as we shared our lives together. And so today would be the third message in that series, and it's based on a covenant promise that we'll exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, graciously accepting encouragement and admonition. And I think it's easier probably to graciously accept encouragement than it is to graciously accept admonition. And you, in the scripture that was read from Hebrews 3 is a kind of encouragement, but it's more an admonition. So that is going to be the, the focus primarily of, of what I'm going to talk to you about today and the big idea, simply, for what we were looking at is simply this, that we will take responsibility for helping one another follow Jesus all the way home. That we understand that our role as believers who are serving and worshiping Christ as individuals, we do that as part of a community. And that none of us, just as God said of Adam in the Garden of Eden, it's not good for any of us to be alone. And so it's important that we take responsibility not only for our own relationship with Christ, but out of love and concern for one another. Certainly parents raising children want to help our children know who Jesus is and follow him faithfully, that they too would come to faith and, and follow him all the way home. And we want to do that with one another as well. And that then brings us to the, the key verse for the message, which is taken from Hebrews 3.13 where the writer says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, it's always difficult when you sort of isolate a, a, a text or a verse from its context. So really the best way to understand that verse is to see it in the larger context of Hebrews 3. So let me just briefly unpack where we are in terms of Hebrews 3. If you have your Bibles open, you can see in, in Hebrews 3, uh, the chapter begins with the writer making a comparison between the ministry of Moses and the ministry of Jesus. That as Moses was a, a faithful as a builder of the house, Jesus is faithful as a son. And the point of the comparison is to highlight, underscore, draw full attention to the superiority of Jesus' ministry. So that we who are in Christ, who have put our hope and faith and trust in Him, would indeed then hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope in Christ. Uh, and that by doing so, we would, again, take responsibility for helping one another get all the way home. As a further incentive to encourage us and to encourage His readers to hold fast to that confidence, to hold fast to that boasting in the hope they have in Christ. The writer of Hebrews uh, quotes the second half of Psalm 95. Now, if you know anything about Psalm 95, you know the first six verses of that psalm are very, very encouraging, very, very bright and hopeful. It talks about the power of God and it invites us to come and worship the Lord together because of all of the great things that He has done. But then when you get to verse 7, which is the part that we have in Hebrews 3, there's a distinctive and notable change in tone where the psalmist says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts 
as in the day of Meribah and at Massa, these two places during the Exodus wilderness where Israel tested and provoked God to uh, treat them in a way that was not as gracious as he would have wanted to. And so the, the psalmist writes that and the writer of Hebrews quotes that because his goal is to encourage his readers not to repeat Israel's mistake, thereby provoking God's wrath upon them. And that then opens up another avenue. What do we mean by God's wrath? We sang about it in, in Christ alone, how the wrath of God was satisfied by Christ on the cross. A very simple way to understand God's wrath is to see it and to understand it as his settled response to sin, evil, and injustice. That God's wrath is, is his, his holiness, which reaches expression. It is a, his settled response, then, to our refusal to respect him and our refusal to, do, to follow his rules. And in the Old Testament, God's wrath is often provoked by Israel's stubbornness uh, and continued disobedience and continued breaking of the covenant. Israel's sin is what the psalmist, what the Hebrew writer wants us to know is Israel's sin because they threw away their confidence in God. They cast aside their hope in Him and they clung to other things, things made of wood, stone, and, and rubble, and things like that. It's, it's why at the end of his life, Joshua, as he is about to say farewell to the Israelites after having brought them into the promised land, settled the land, divided the land among the tribes. It's why there in Joshua 23, verse 8, uh, the military leader there says, cling to the Lord, because he knows he's seen Israel's rebellion. He's seen how they have thrown away their confidence and the price they paid for it, 40 years wandering in the wilderness and all of that. So there's this exhortation to hold fast to the Lord that Joshua issues. And so in the same way that uh, Joshua encourages and exhorts his fellow Israelites to cling to the Lord, the writer of Hebrews is doing the same thing here because the, his primary audience are Jews who have come to trust in Christ. And so they would know, right, their past history. So he is pulling into their current situation, history of Israel, right into their present midst that don't do what they did because our confidence, our hope, comes from having this new covenant relationship with Christ by grace through faith as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And we ought not then provoke God's wrath by abandoning that confidence and throwing away that hope. That is, we need to cling to him as the, the author of our salvation. And it's very interesting when you, when you look at it like that, the way that the writer has framed it, he makes it a conditional thing. Now, we often talk about, you know, God's love is unconditional, His grace is unconditional, that He loves us uh, to the fullest extent and, and all of that. But there is this element of obedience that's associated with the gospel. That yes, we, we do love God and, and there is that subjective aspect of our love for Him, but how do we prove that love for Him? Well, we, we do what He says. We obey His commands. And Jesus Himself said this uh, in John 14, that if you love Me... If you love me, you'll keep my commands. And so there is this condition that's required of us. If we say we love God, if we say we love Christ, if we say we're keeping in step with the Spirit, then the way that we live, the way that we think, the way that we speak 
will be the evidence of that love. It'll overflow, not only in love toward God, but then also outwardly to our, our husbands, our wives, our moms, our dads, and so forth. And so the, the encouragement here is, keep on doing what you have done by virtue of your faith in Christ and keep practicing that. And it's, a, it's a, an encouragement that is given to the entire church because we have a responsibility, not only individually to pursue faithfulness in Christ, but we have a corporate responsibility to take responsibility for one another so that we can all arrive safely home in the presence of Christ in glory. That some of us may get there sooner than others, but the goal is that we would all be there on that day of days when Christ returns and we stand in worship of our great God and Savior. And again, since most of the audience that the writer is addressing are Jews who trusted in Jesus, he uses Psalm 95 to remind them of what Israel did by throwing away their confidence, testing God at the waters of Meribah and at Massah. Uh, They threw away their confidence. They refused to put their hope in God who delivered them from Egypt. And that's why he follows that quote in Psalm 95 with what he then says in verses 12 to 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, the big idea, we will take responsibility for helping one another follow Jesus all the way home. With that as our key verse, a couple of questions need to be answered. What is an evil, unbelieving heart, and why should we avoid it? And the second one is, how can we help one another avoid being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? So let's take those two questions one at a time. What is an an evil, unbelieving heart, and why should we avoid it? Well, very simply from verse 12 of chapter 3, an evil, unbelieving heart is the bitter fruit of failing to trust God. Psalm 95 tells us that an evil, unbelieving heart is one that provokes God's wrath by refusing to worship Him and to honor Him and Him alone. It's a heart that denies God's power and it slanders His character. Think about Israel's experience in the wilderness, right? When they get into the desert, the very first thing they do is complain. Oh, yes, he brought us out of Egypt, but he's brought us here to die. Were there not enough graves in Egypt that Moses, you dragged us out into the wilderness for us to die here? And they began by accusing Moses. They were indirectly provoking God's wrath. And so that the problem that you see arising, which is displayed in Psalm 95, is that while there may have been some Israelites, probably all of them, who were happy no longer to be slaves in Egypt, not all of those who were delivered from slavery in Egypt were ready to completely commit to worshiping God and God alone, or even to follow all of the Ten Commandments. You might say that they they were still more Egyptian than they were Jewish. They saw no problem with worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, along with the gods of the Egyptians. They tried to keep one foot in both worlds. And sometimes as believers, we try to do the same thing. We try to keep one foot in the church, but we still have one foot in Egypt. We still have one foot in the, in the culture where we 
we say we have an allegiance to God and an affinity there, but there is this pull of either whether it's materialism or consumerism or the commitment to succeed or to get by or to really achieve certain things that we somehow sort of um, cheat God, if you will. We, we sort of scrimp and save on our commitment to Christ because we're wanting to achieve something else. The writer of the Hebrews says, beware of that because that can easily lead to the development of an evil and unbelieving heart. And the writer of the Hebrews is worried that his congregation of Jewish believers will repeat Israel's mistake by testing God, doubting his power, slandering his character, and most deadly of all, worshiping him with half a heart. That's why he warns them, be all in for Christ or face the wrath of God. It's, it's a message that has a stern, stern element to it. It's true for Israel, it's true for the early church, and it's true for us. God is looking for people, men and women, right? boys and girls, who will worship him in spirit and in truth, with all of their heart, all of their mind, soul, and strength. He's not looking for Christians who, who think they're worshiping him by attending church or a Bible study or by being good, moral people. He, what he, God wants and what he's looking for are followers who are all in for Christ. Followers who are fully committed to, as I said, loving him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then out of that love for him, an overflow is toward our neighbor, toward our spouses, and toward our friends. When you think about it, one of the, for me, one of the most surprising verses in all of the Old Testament is found in that farewell speech that Joshua gives in Joshua 23 and 24. Remember, at the end of his life, Joshua is there. Israel has entered the promised land. They have conquered most of Canaan. The land has been divided among the, the 12 tribes. There's still some territory that needs to be tamed, still some people that need to be driven out. But for the most part, things are settled. But there's still work to do. And after encouraging and exhorting Israel to cling to the Lord there in Joshua 23, this is what Joshua says in Joshua 24, 14 and 15. Now listen to this. He says, now fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the God that your father, um, and, <clears throat> and serve the Lord. And if it is evil, <clears throat> if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That is a stunning declaration. Remember, it was Israel's rebellion, their idolatry that provoked God and caused them to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. Remember, they were there, and you read it in Numbers 13, and they said, oh, there are giants in the land, we can't go in. And so they doubted that God would dispel those nations and drive them out. So they spent 40 years wandering, and that generation has died, and now here is that second generation. And after that first generation dies, God brings the second generation, He brings them into the promised land, He conquers the nations that are in that land, He conquers cities. And then after doing all that, he gives them houses they didn't build and vineyards they didn't plant. And after all of that, Joshua still has to exhort them, put away the gods 
your fathers served in Egypt. You can't have one foot in the kingdom and another foot in the world. We're tempted, though, I think, to do that because it's, it's hard sometimes to be all in for Christ. Because there's a cost that's associated with that. And it's a cost that just merely thinking <laughs> Christ's thoughts after him can get you canceled. Even just saying there are two sexes, two genders, is now an offense. And so you hedge on those kinds of things. Or you, you say, well, this particular activity is, is fine under certain circumstances. What Joshua's farewell message says, what the writer of the Hebrews tells us is two things. An evil, unbelieving heart tries to keep one foot in Egypt and one foot in the church. It's a heart that is skilled at separating church from work, church from life. It's skilled at separating what happens on Sunday from what happens Monday through Saturday. We compartmentalize. Church is church. Sunday is Sunday. That's God's day, God's time. Monday through Friday, that's my time. That's when I engage in business. That's when I make deals. That's when I plan and plot things. That's when I, I do things that I want to do. And then when Saturday comes, Saturday is a catch-up on sleep day or catch-up on other things day or drive your kids to whatever sports in session day. Believe me, I know that pressure. I was a hockey dad. And when we lived in southwestern Ontario for 10 years, there were many a Saturday I woke up early on Saturday morning knowing that the day ahead required my wife and I to drive all over west, southwestern Ontario to take two boys to hockey games and a daughter to figure skating recital somewhere. And it's, it's just as easy for me as a pastor to say, well, Sunday is God's day, but Monday, you know, the old joke about pastors only working one day a week, right? That's why I'm lousy at golf, because I, I didn't play golf. But an evil, unbelieving heart tries to break commitment to Christ along with commitment to the world. You can't do it. Some of you may remember there was a movie some years ago called Kicking and Screaming. It, uh, it, uh, Will Farrell was in it and Robert Duvall. Robert Duvall played Will Farrell's father. He was a very competitive guy. And he, he, his, uh, Robert Duvall coached a soccer team that was a perennial winner. And uh, Will Farrell's son, Robert Duvall's grandson in the movie, is playing. He gets cut from that team. And so Will Farrell volunteers to coach a soccer team with his son on it. And whereas his father's team is a perennial winner, his team just loses every game by a lot. He's got a team of misfits until there are two Italian boys that move into the community to help their uncle who owns a butcher shop. And these two Italian boys, they transform this losing team into a winning team. But there's a problem. They can't always come to the games because their Italian uncle wants them to work in the butcher shop. And he would tell them, you can play soccer. But then in Italian, he would say, la carne viene prima, meat comes first. Well, the writer of the Hebrews would look at his audience and in Italian he would say, Cristo viene prima. Christ comes first. We, we have a hard time, I think, thinking that we say it, we read books about it, and it sounds good even for preachers to say it. Put Christ first and everything else will fall into line. 
Put Christ first and all those other priorities will come into place. I've, I've had the experience of ministering to people who are dying, as pastors often do. And I have yet to encounter a, a dying man or a dying woman who has said to me, you know, pastor, of all the things I regret, I regret that I didn't spend more time in the office. Or I really regret that I didn't spend more time online. Or I, didn't, or I regret that I didn't spend more time on the golf course. They say the very opposite. I wish I had spent more time with my family. I wish I had spent more time reading the Word. I wish I had spent more time thinking about how I could better my, you know, my knowledge of Scripture, if I could help my, my neighbor, things like that. You put Christ first, you won't have that regret. So the, so the first thing that we need to know is that evil, unbelieving heart tries to keep one foot in Egypt, one foot in the church, you can't do that. But the second thing is, and it's, I think this is even more insidious, it's an evil, unbelieving heart is a heart that selectively applies the gospel when it's most convenient to do so. So when it's to my advantage to apply the gospel, when it suits my needs, then it's of worth to me. So I'll use, I'll lean on God, I'll use God language to, to get what I want. But when God or Scripture says something that goes against what I want, I fudge, I hedge, or I ignore it. I make an excuse. God can't really mean that. Not in this situation, not in my case. He, you know, he doesn't realize the kinds of circumstances I'm in. We may pray and ask God to give us something that we need or want, and God says no. And we get angry about that. We get disappointed. We get sullen. And we forget that sometimes God says no, not because he wants to spoil our fun or to necessarily or be mean, but he's not. He's saying no because he is looking at our situation from a position of superior wisdom and knowledge. And he knows what is best for us. And so sometimes he says no because he knows what's best. We've often told our kids when they were younger you know, when they didn't get something they wanted or we would tell them they couldn't have something and they would, you know, moan and complain about that, we would say, look, <clears throat> I've been 13, you haven't been 40. And when you're 40, you'll understand. When you have your own child, you'll understand what we're saying. But I don't expect you to understand it right now. I just expect you to accept the fact that we know what's best for you. I remember, you know, when our kids were, were younger, and, and maybe yours do too, they would, you know, they'd like to do, go inline skating. And my wife was a lot better at this than I was. I think most moms are. She would not let our kids go out inline skating unless they were decked out in a helmet, elbow pads, wrist guards, and knee pads. And they, just would, they would just sort of stand there in the doorway, you know, feeling and looking ridiculous in their minds. Because, like, what's this? I, mean, I look like a dork in front of all my friends. It was like, well, we just want you to be safe. What, what seemed ironic to me was when both my boys played hockey, they never complained about wearing hockey equipment. But we would tell them, look, we're not trying to spoil your phone, we're just trying to keep you safe. Sometimes God says no because he wants to keep us safe. And then there are times that God doesn't say no, but he just says, wait, you're not ready for this. You're not ready for that. You're not mature enough to handle that responsibility. You're not able at this time to, to deal with that. You just need to learn the, the discipline, the self-discipline of delayed gratification. It's why we tell young couples who are dating, 
reserve sexual intercourse for marriage, not while you're dating. While that is a good thing that God created, there is a time and a place for it. Or if you're you know, on a lower level, if you're, you're dieting, you put off having an extra slice of dessert because you know that it's better for you to just uh, ignore that and pay attention to your health. So an evil, unbelieving heart takes the approach that if God is withholding something from me, he must be a mean person. He must, he must have some ulterior motive that is suspicious. This is how Satan tempted Adam and Eve to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All these other things you can have. He knows if you have this one, you'll be like God. An evil, unbelieving heart believes that as long as God gives me what I want, I'll do what he wants. It's a transactional relationship. He scratches my back, I scratch his. But as soon as he denies my request, as soon as he demands something of me that cuts into my agenda, well, look, he and I are going to have a problem. That kind of attitude is a dangerous one because it puts me at risk of falling away because it reveals that my heart has not yet fully submitted to his authority in my life. If I truly love God, I will do what he wants even if it goes against what I want. Psalm 15 talks about who can ascend the holy hill of the Lord, who can be in God's presence. It is the the, the person who swears to an oath, even to their own hurt. So if I truly love God, I'll do what He says. If I truly love Jesus, I will keep His Word. Even when keeping that Word, even when obeying Jesus, exposes and reveals something about my character that His Word needs to change. I look at myself in the mirror of God's Word and Jesus reveals something about me just as He revealed something in Peter when He asked Peter three times at the end of John's Gospel, Peter, do you love me? Sure, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Peter, do you love me? And then Peter just, he just melts. Lord, you know all things. Right? You know that I love you. Right? And out of that love, right? Out of that love Jesus, uh, that Peter has, Jesus lays out the condition. You love me? Feed my sheep. You love me? Do what I say. If I'm truly keeping in step with the Spirit, my life will demonstrate love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It will bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Especially, especially when I am confronted with behavior that runs contrary to what God says is honorable to Him and encouraging and uplifting to a brother or sister in Christ. You think about when Nathan confronted David about his adultery with Bathsheba. And David didn't deny it. He didn't, uh, he didn't excuse it by saying, oh, that was, obviously, Nathan, that was, a, that was an error in judgment. That was an inappropriate relationship. I ought not to have done that. He didn't blame it on Bathsheba. He didn't say, you know, well, Nathan, if Bathsheba hadn't been out there bathing in the nude, none of this would have ever happened. It's actually her fault. But he doesn't. What David does when confronted by Nathan with his sin is he, he says the three hardest words that are for a man to say. I was wrong. I have sinned against the Lord. The sin is mine. You think when Paul confronts Peter, when Peter had withdrawn in Antioch, when Peter had withdrawn from eating with the, the Gentiles there because some men from the circumcision party, these, these Jewish believers who believe that in order for you to be truly saved, if you were a non-Jew, you had to be circumcised. 
Before these men arrived in Antioch, Peter had no trouble eating at table with these Gentiles, fellowshipping with them, rubbing elbows with them, enjoying life with them. But as soon as these men from the circumcision party comes, out of fear of them, Peter withdraws. He separates. He shuns his Gentile friends. Paul points this out to him says, you can't do this. This is, this is conduct that is not in keeping with the truth of the gospel. Remember, this is Peter who, in Acts 10, gets a vision from the Lord to go to Cornelius, the Roman centurion's household. He goes to the household. He preaches the gospel. He even tells Cornelius before he enters his house, you know, it's not lawful for us Jews to interact with you Gentiles, but God showed me to do otherwise, and so he goes and he preaches the gospel. The Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius and his household so that they all come to faith in Christ and they're baptized. And as this is all happening, Peter says, well, now I see that God shows no partiality, and yet here he is showing partiality. And Paul says, worse than that, Peter, you are in danger of falling away because you are nullifying the grace of the gospel by pulling yourself away. There's a, they were taking responsibility, were Nathan and Paul, for helping, in David's case, the king, and in Peter's case, the, one of the apostles, to get them back on track. When Nathan confronted David, David didn't say, look, how dare you, Nathan? Maybe you don't know this, uh, Nathan, but let me tell you that you know, God told me I'm a man after his own heart. Did, you're not aware of this? But he doesn't say that. But when, when Paul uh, confronts Peter, Peter doesn't say, how dare you? you know, look, Paul, you may have seen Jesus in a vision, but I was there. Oh, and by the way, did Jesus ever tell you that he would build his church on, on the rock? He doesn't do any of that. Neither of those men pulled rank. Their response of repentance, confession, enabled them to reveal that they had a tender heart, that when they were confronted, they graciously received that admonition. They graciously received that correction. And they repented and they were restored because they understood that what was told to them was not said in an attempt to condemn them, but an attempt to lead them back to the very God who had saved and redeemed them. So that begs the question then. When a brother confronts you about your behavior, how do you respond? You say, that's none of your business. Leave me alone. How dare you? That's just between me and the Lord. We'll handle it. Or do you say, like David, I was wrong. I have sinned. Help me get back in step with the Spirit. When a sister addresses you regarding something you've done or something you said, do you respond, that's none of your business. Don't stick your nose in where it doesn't belong. Or do you say, I'm sorry. What can I do to make things right? That kind of response, I'm sorry. How can I make it right? What can be done to restore the relationship? That kind of response, that reveals a heart that is not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That reveals a heart that is not calcified by unbelief. When you think about it too, that inasmuch as David and Peter are to be admired for their response, for their repentance and their remorse. Without Nathan and without Paul, 
both men would never have been confronted with their sin, never been made aware that they were in danger of falling away from God. I know there, I can look back in several times on my own life, particularly as a young Christian, but then later on, where I was very grateful for older brothers to come alongside and correct and admonish and exhort proper behavior, proper commitment, and challenge me and, and really get up in my face and say, what are you doing? And you need to straighten this out. And I was very great. I didn't like it, but I knew that their intention was coming from a scriptural standpoint. And that leads us to the, the second answer to the second question, which is how can we help one another uh, avoid being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? And before we answer that question, we, gotta, we have another problem. We have to figure out what is the deceitfulness of sin? Very simply, I think you can define it as it's a heart that refuses to trust that God has your best interest at heart. It's the stubborn belief that God cannot be trusted to do what is right and good and just. It's a cold-hearted conviction that despite everything God has done for us in the past, He cannot be trusted to be there in the future when we really need Him. This was Israel's sin. Think about it. There they are. They've been delivered from slavery in Egypt. And they say, sure, you know, he delivered us from slavery. But can he part the Red Sea? Okay, okay, he parted the Red Sea. But can he give us fresh water to drink? Okay, okay, sure, he gave us fresh water to drink. But can he give us meat? All right, he gave us meat. But can he defeat our enemies? Okay, he defeated our enemies, but can he really lead us into the promised land? And on and on and on it goes. I look back at my own life and to my own embarrassment, I, I, I have played that game where God has brought my wife, my family and I through very troubled times. And then I'm faced with another crisis, let's say, and I'm like, ah, and I get angry and I get upset and it's like, I forget We've been through times just as worse as this. We've, we've been through times when we've had no money, yet God has always provided. We've been through times when there was relational strife, and yet God healed. There have been times when we struggled with uh, things that were happening in church, and yet God pulled us through. A friend of mine used to, used to tell me that he would define faith as trusting God in the present, based on what he has done in the past, so we will depend upon him for the future. That is the antidote to the deceitfulness of sin. Right? It's, the, it's, the, it's the voice of the enemy that says, that asks rather, has God really said? Does God really love you? Well, if God really loves you, then why is your friend getting the job and not you? If God really loves you, why did your friend make the team and you got cut? Or your second string? If God really loves you, why did you not get that promotion? And on and on it goes. And he whispers those things. When the truth is, God is maybe holding those things from us, again, in order to make us more like Christ, in order to perfect in us something that only by not getting those things, only by going through the suffering, 
we learn what it is to follow him more faithfully. I, I, uh, I read of a study uh, that one of the key differences between uh, education in Japan and education in the States it was drawn out in this one example that there were these children, I think they were in second or third grade, these Japanese students in second or third grade, and they were asked to make uh, a 3D diagram. You know, he used to draw like the, the little box, you do another box, you draw lines. And this one student was having the most difficult time doing it on paper. And the teacher asked the student to go to the blackboard and try to draw it there. In the United States, the smart kids go to the blackboard. So in Japan, this little student walked up there, and he's struggling, but all of his classmates, they're giving him instructions. And they're telling him where to draw the lines and what it should look like. And then when he does it, they all clap. And the lesson is, it's through struggle that we learn. It's through struggle that we become unified. So, you know, to borrow from what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. When one part of the body is healthy, the whole body enjoys health. And so there's this idea of taking responsibility for one another is learning what it means to struggle, but also to succeed. What it means to encourage one another to do well and to rejoice at another success without becoming envious. Like, oh, I wish I had that. He's like, no, good for them. They've been through the deep waters. They've been through the dark times. And God has restored them. And God has blessed them. And if you are the one who is being blessed, the reason you're being blessed may very well be that you could then bless others who are going through a difficult time. We're taking responsibility. We're understanding that God is knitting one another into a community in which we are mutually supporting one another. It's, it's how communities thrive. It's how communities are salt and light in the world. So how can we help one another avoid being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Well, the best protection against that is to be a, com a community that is committed to taking responsibility for one another. When you think about it, Hebrews 3.13 says in the negative what Paul says in the positive in Philippians 3.12-16. So 3.13 in Hebrews, that's a negative way of saying what Paul says in Philippians 3, 13, uh, 12 to 16. And Paul says this, he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Just, that's important because we tend to think that we can only give counsel and encouragement and advice as if we have reached a certain level of perfection and maturity. And Paul doesn't say that, but with humility he says, I haven't gotten there yet. But I'm pressing on toward that. I haven't achieved it yet. But I press on to receive it. And he says, I, one thing I do, he says, I forget what lies, lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then this is the key, because we sometimes forget the last two verses of that paragraph. Let those who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Sometimes God will reveal things to us through His Word, directly through the voice of His Spirit as we read the Scripture. Sometimes He will do that through the admonition and the encouragement of a brother or sister in Christ. Whether they're a pastor or whether they're 
someone that's in your Bible study or a Bible study leader. It could be your wife, a spouse. As Christ followers, we are responsible to the Lord as well as to one another. It's what Paul talks about in Philippians 2, how we are to work out our salvation together in community. Confronting a brother or sister regarding bad or dangerous behavior isn't, we ought not see it as nagging. If it's done well, it's an expression of love. It's an expression of genuine concern for their soul. When we see our children and our grandchildren misbehaving, it's not nagging to correct them. It's, it's an expression of love. We want them to learn what good behavior is so that you know, they'll be asked back to their friend's house so that you know, they, they won't be considered a terror. The same is true if you want to correct one another's behavior as well as encourage good behavior. Affirm the good. Affirm the good. A sincere effort to, to do what is necessary to encourage one another to pursue Christ with our whole heart. Paul talks about this again in Philippians 2 where he says, instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should in humility be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. It's Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Paul says the same thing again in Ephesians 4 when he talks about speaking the truth in love, that we all may grow up together, each member doing its part, growing into unity, learning what it is to be affirmed, what it, what it is to be exhorted and admonished. To be able to do that and to rejoice fully. So let's land uh, this plane. What does that look like in, in, in real terms? I've tried to give some examples. Some of it is when I know in, in uh, my relationship with my wife, there are times when I'm, I, my, I've overlooked certain things. One of, one of the things I, I'm, I'm particularly lazy about, time for confession here, is we have a dishwasher, maybe, I'm sure you husbands have never done this. The dishwasher is here, but the dishes go in the sink. It's not all that hard to rinse the dish and put it in the dishwasher. And they pile up in the sink, I got no room there, well I gotta go on the counter. Because the sink is full. In my mind, I'm going to get to that. In my mind, I'm going to clean that. But my wife sees it as a sign of disrespect that I'm leaving it there. And when I'm called out on it, there's no explanation that can justify what I've done. I've got to own up to it. That's a small thing. There are other, maybe bigger things, but small things become big things. I remember uh, serving in another church in, an, in another state and there was a, a fellow who was a very successful businessman, and, and, uh, but, he, but he had a drinking problem. And he had a, a, a friend uh, who attended our church. He was uh, actually one of our elders. And he, he had lovingly confronted his friend, he, and he said, yeah, he said, I got a promise. Said, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go to an AA meeting. And my, my, uh, his friend said, sorry, that's not good enough. I don't trust that you're going to keep your word. He said, so here's the deal. I'll drive you to your AA meeting. I'll make sure you go into the building. 
and I'll walk with you there. I'll make sure you're, you're in the circle, and then I'll leave, and I'll wait for you in my car outside. And he did that for a year, every week. He took responsibility. It wasn't nagging, but it was out of concern for that man's health, for his business, for his family, for his walk with Christ. That's an example of that. And of course, the ultimate example of someone taking responsibility for our growth in faith is, in fact, the Lord Jesus himself. And as I I told our folks at Maranatha, you knew I was going to bring Jesus into this at some point. Because when you think about this text in Hebrews, the lead-in to it is right at the end of Hebrews 2. The writer of the Hebrews says in verses 16 and 18 of Hebrews 2, speaking of Jesus, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or atonement for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So Christ took responsibility for our sin so that we would take responsibility for helping one another follow him all the way home. He identified with us and was tempted in everything as we are, yet without sin, so that as that great high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses, we have confidence in Christ. We have hope in Christ that we might always draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace when we need it. Let's take responsibility for one another so that we can make it all the way home and see him face to face. You think about that, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this privilege of not only being responsible for one another, but receiving that encouragement and admonition as well, that we might, in doing that, grow more and more into the image of Christ. I pray for our brothers and sisters here at New Hope, that just as at Maranatha, we strive to do these things for your glory and for the good of one another, that we would in all things honor you in this attempt and in our growth. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. message from from Hebrews. Um, I know I got to rush home and uh, put some dishes in the dishwasher now, so yeah. Sharon's not laughing. Why aren't you laughing, Sharon? Uh, So uh, every uh, week uh, here at New Hope, we we take the Lord's Supper, and uh, this week uh, I have the privilege in leading us uh, through this. Um, if you have uh, completely trusted in the Lord uh, and uh, are um, 
obediently uh, following, loving, trusting in Him, please uh, partake in the Lord's Supper today. Uh, but we ask, uh, if you have not completely trusted in Him and have uh, uh, questions on who He is and what He has done, um, uh, please uh, look to the screen where we have some meditations over the gospel and uh, who Jesus is uh, and meditate over uh, the gospel. Uh, if you haven't received the elements, just raise your hand. So um, this is a great opportunity for us as believers to uh, slow down, shut out all the problems in our lives, uh, problems at work, relationship, uh, home, uh, health, uh, and spend some time with the Lord. Uh, abide in Him. Commune with Him. Think about who He is, what He has done. Uh, confess your sin to Him. Uh, and uh, thank Him. And love Him. So if you could bow your heads and uh, spend some time and uh, commune with our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and spend some time abiding in Him. New Hope, as we prepare our hearts to uh, partake in the Lord's Supper, hear these words. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. New Hope, let's eat together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. New Hope, let's drink together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen.
Thank you, Pastor uh, Michael, again, for that very timely and convicting message. Our benediction as we depart today is also from uh, Hebrews, at the end of Hebrews. Uh, hear these words as we um, uh, just take the gospel into our hearts. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.